Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Peck. church. It's good to be together again this morning to sing God's praises, to be in his house. Uh, today's sermon is going to touch on something that we all have experience with. My guess is that most of us have been on the receiving end and the giving end of this experience. The book of Hebrews tells us a lot of things that are very important, but one of the things it gets across early on in its chapters is that We have a high priest, Jesus, who can sympathize with all of our experiences, who's been tempted in every way. But it can also be said because of that, that we can empathize with the experiences of Jesus, that the temptations that he faced are temptations that we go through as well. And as we enter the last week of Jesus' life and this journey through the gospel of Luke, as we've been focused in this story on the life of Jesus... We may not know what it's like to have the fear that Jesus has and the the idea specifically of nails being driven through his his hands and his feet. But some of us know what it's like to fear death might come around the corner. Some of us know what it's like to experience unfair suffering. Some of us know what it's like to go through desperate hours of prayer where we beg God for an outcome. Not all of us have had all those experiences. But some of us in the room have. But here's one thing we all have experienced that Jesus faced. We know what it's like to to be betrayed by those who are closest to us. Betrayal is an experience we've all had or will have at some point in our lives. It's one of the most painful experiences that we walk through in our lives. So today I want to speak to this experience of betrayal through the lens of Jesus' experience personal betrayal that he experiences. But I want to ask you this morning not to keep this as a text that's kind of at arm's length. I want to ask you to go to those moments in your life that are easier to keep the door closed on. I know what I'm asking is difficult this morning, but I want you to to be able to name and go back to experiences of betrayal you had. And my prayer is, as we leave today, that we'll have taken one more step to walking toward healing in even that door we've closed. So I'm asking your permission for that this morning, and I want to ask God to help us as continue our journey of healing so that we can be wholehearted followers of Jesus who are more open to the healing he wants to offer so that we can be open to provide that healing to others. Before we get to the story of Jesus this morning, I want to share a story of a member of our church who has experienced betrayal at a very personal level. Many of us at this point could have shared our story because we all have experiences of betrayal. But this one is particularly stirring, and uh, I'm grateful for Michelle Collard being willing to tell that story this morning. 
So I want us to watch this video together. My name is Michelle Collard. I am a member of Greenville Oaks and have been for 26 years, I think. The story that I'm going to share today happened about 30 years ago. I was living in the Panhandle. Had um, I was married to a minister, and we were working in a church that was northeast of Amarillo. My friendship with Hazel began at my initiation, sort of. We just clicked. We had a great time together. We um, we just we worked well together and had fun together, and we just had a growing friendship that was precious to me. I just felt really, really good about that friendship. December the 26th, 1990, we were in Colorado. My husband and I and the kids were in Colorado at my parents' house. We'd spent Christmas with them. And um, that morning, the 26th, we were driving to Abilene. I was making one fast mad dash through the house to make sure there were no pacifiers and blankets and stuff at home. When I went through the bedroom that we had slept in and saw there was a book on the floor. And when I did pick it up, papers fell out. So I picked up the papers and saw that it was a letter and it said, my darling. And so I started reading it. And just a very few more sentences in, I realized that the letter was to my best friend, my new best friend, not to me. And I can't even tell you how I managed to go downstairs and get in the car and drive to Abilene without anyone knowing I didn't tell anyone that I found it until later that night. We got to Abilene and I could show John that I had the letter. And he was broken and devastated and sorry and terrified and um, begged me not to leave and not to take the kids and all those things. And we got home and I told John I wanted to talk to her. She was a lot more concerned about making it right with John than she was with me. And so the awareness was the friendship had never been for her what it was for me. I was 100% committed to my marriage, 100%, and was willing to do whatever was necessary to fix the broken parts and to get through this. We decided we would go to counseling every week and we went on weekly dates. Her father-in-law was not a Christian. He blew it wide open, just let the world know. And at that point in time, John said to me, um, I'm done. I'm tired of living for God, the church, everybody, but what I want. And I'm done. Uh, I, don't, I don't want this marriage to work. Um, I've never quit caring for her. I'm done. And he left. One day, shortly after John left, um, the elders called me and asked me if I could meet them at the building. And I said, sure. They showed me into a room where I was in a chair in the center and they were at the table. And the question was, as they pulled out the checkbook, how much money would it take to get you to leave here? I lost everything. And that hurt. But again, at the same time, it's the time when the, my walk with God became something that I don't know that it would have ever been without that kind of experience. It became based on who God was and not what I could do for Him. It was a time that quickly I began to see God in a whole new way. 
I always knew God was going to be moving. When I would get a phone call, one of the first phone calls I got was a lady saying, I run a daycare business. I don't want it anymore. Would you take it? You can have my building. You can have all my supplies, the toys. You can have everything there, plus all my clients. You just take it. Another phone call from a woman started the same way. Michelle, you don't know me, but I took the liberty of going online and getting all the uh, licensing requirements that you need and all of the applications. I filled them out for you, and I've already paid the fee if you just would come and sign the paper. God just started showing me how people all over that community, and he showed up time and time and time again. Kids and I made it abundantly well without ever wanting or needing or being afraid. We weren't afraid for our future. God was there and surrounding me with peace and with comfort and with joy. And the words in the Bible that I'd read all my life became like love letters to me. One of the things that I've learned in um, this, especially in the thinking back and retelling the story, is that divorce, betrayal, those aren't one-time life events that happen and you deal, you grieve, whatever you get on, you move on. I have learned that it's a journey that I'm going to be on until I take my last breath. I was able to forgive Hazelyn. I was able to forgive John, although hurt still there. It's obvious that it's dug up some, but I was able to forgive them not because of who I am but because of who God is, the God that I met in those days, the God that I came to know and love during those darkest days. We talk about church being a safe place to share our lives. And I just want to thank Michelle for her willingness to share that story. But I know that connects with others of you who are out here in your personal experiences. And I want to ask that we, again, go to that place, because I think some of the things that Michelle tells as she tells her story are things you're going to hear in this story today. So, Michelle, thank you. And I want to pray for us as we continue on in this message this morning. Father, there are doors that are easier closed in our lives than opened. There are uh, things we cannot even imagine that will be around the next corner that uh, will shape our lives. I'm grateful for the restoration that you can bring. I'm grateful for the ways we can begin to open up to trust again that are possible when it seems at moments as if it will never be possible again. I'm grateful for the ways that you use your people to tell the stories of our pain And to show the ways that you can move us through that because there are others in the room this morning who need those stories to hang on right now. God, my prayer is for those tender spots in our lives that we rather not look at, that this morning you would attend, that you would soften, that you would pour oil on, that you would do whatever is needed, God, in the lives of those of us that have experienced deep betrayal. And that you would help heal us in whatever step is needed next for us, even now. I pray this in the name of the only one who can do that, whose power was raised from the dead. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Betrayal is the experience of trust being destroyed in a relationship. A relationship, a marriage, a friendship takes place within an agreement of trust. And as we grow in age, the stakes get higher and betrayal becomes more painful and debilitating. Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors and thinkers, and she tells the story of her third grade daughter, Ellen, coming home from school one day, only to start sobbing on the floor when she entered the door. So Brene asked her what was wrong, and she pulled herself together enough to say something really hard happened at school, mom. I shared with a couple of friends during recess some really hard things, and by the time we got back to the classroom, everyone in the class knew what had happened. And they were laughing and pointing at me and calling me names, and it was so bad, the kids were so disruptive that the teacher had to take marbles out of the marble jar. Maybe you've seen marble jars before, right? Teacher's tool. I remember this in fifth grade. Mr. V had a marble jar, and When we behaved well, a marble would be added to the jar. And when we behaved poorly, a marble would be taken out. But that jar sat there as a reminder of our behavior. And and, and so she said the marble jar was a jar the teachers placed marbles in. And again, it was that. If, If they behaved well, more came in. And if not well, then they were taken out. That day, the teacher took it out, not knowing the story behind it. She said, it was one of the worst moments of my life, Ellen said. And then Ellen looked at Brene with a face that she said was seared into her mind, Brene, as she tells the story. She said, I'll never trust anyone again. And Brene went straight into mama bear mode. So Brene took a deep breath and thought through how to explain to a third grader this situation that she'd deal with again and again. And Ellen, she said, Ellen, trust is like a marble jar. You share those hard stories and hard things that happen to you with friends who over time have filled the marble jar. They've done thing after thing to prove they are worthy to receive the deepest truths of your life. I like that image. How many of you have remembered conversations like that with your kids? Maybe you remember walking in the door yourself after an experience like that, this experience of betrayal that we've all felt at some point. And as a parent, that experience is painful as you think about your child and not wanting them to walk through that pain. But it also takes you back to those moments in your life where you've experienced the same kind of pain. See, when we begin any relationship, we don't usually talk about the dynamics that are at play under the surface. But there's a feeling out process to every relationship we have. Is this person worthy of my trust is one of the questions we ask. Is this a person who values me as much as I value them? Is this a person who can keep my secrets? And as our relationship grows, trust grows and our comfort grows with the trust that is worked to be established. So our our relationships are like this marble jar here. And every good deed that we do, every secret that's kept is adding a marble to that jar. But all it takes is a few things, small things that begin to take trust out. In a marriage relationship, this can work that way, right? Where there's a date night that's committed to, but then something comes up. Well, you're taking a marble out. And if that's done enough over time, that depletes trust. But there's those moments, and we all know them, where it's not just taking a marble out. It's as if the whole marble jar goes out at once. And that's what betrayal is. It's the experience of having built up all of this energy and effort only to find that there's nothing left in the jar. And those moments can be life-defining moments. They can change us forever. But I'm here to tell you this morning, they don't have to destroy us forever. 
For some, those moments are wounds that remained open for the rest of our lives. For others, those moments are in the healing stage. We're beginning to see scabs form and maybe the hope of scars down the road. And for some of us, we can look and we can point to scars that were there at one point. And we're able to tell stories of how we came through it. So we find ourselves in the room this morning at different places in that journey. So what is betrayal? Betrayal is the removal of marbles from your jar with another person. Betrayal is the loss of trust that had been developed. Because here's the reality. There's a level of trust we can give to strangers, right? I mean, you you give trust uh, to your car mechanic, your plumber, the restaurant where you get your favorite tacos. They develop your trust because they consistently build trust with the experience they give to you with the car that's returned properly. And what do they do, need to do if they were to lose your trust? Well, all it would take would be a free oil change maybe, right? Or a comped meal if the tacos aren't up to expectation. But the deepest experience of betrayal always come from those that are closest to us. And the reason is because they built up more marbles. They have more marbles to lose. And when we build trust, there's more risk. We have more to lose. I like this definition of trust from Charles Feltman. He says, trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. So when we do that, when we make our vulnerabilities open to others, we choose to make our lives vulnerable to the actions of another person over and over again, we have much to lose if we experience betrayal from them. Which brings us to the story this morning that I want to read along with you. It's Luke chapter 22. And so if you have your Bibles or your phones or Uh, something to pull up the text. I'd love for you to turn there this morning, Luke 22. This is during Jesus' last week of his life, and I I think this is one of those scenes where the marbles get dumped out in a relationship. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil had tempted Jesus in the wilderness three times. You remember the story? And each time Jesus is able to respond with scripture and able to say no to Satan's temptations. But do you remember the last verse In that story, we talked about it several months ago. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to this text. It says, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And what we find as we read the story of Luke is that the the word devil or Satan does not show up again until this story that we read just this morning. Luke 22, verses 1 through 6. Satan entered. Judas. That's the next time in the story. The opportune time that Jesus is waiting on finally arrives, and it comes in the mix between these chief priests and teachers who are trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus. But it is this betrayal, not of them, but of Judas, one of the 12 who's been walking with him, that is this deep betrayal of Jesus, handing him over, even though they'd spent all this time together. And the word that's used here Uh, when he uses the envy and hatred of the religious leaders and then one of Jesus' disciples. But 
It's the lure of money that also is used in this situation. And the word betray, I want to talk about this word for just a moment in verse 4, is the same word translated hand over in verse 6, okay? So the same Greek word is translated two different ways, but it comes up twice, one in verse 4, one in verse 6. And the word is parodidomi, and the word is from a root that means didomi, which means to give, or, or to hand in some way, to hand something to someone. And para is the prefix, which means uh, over, over to, basically. So uh, to betray someone is to hand them over. That's the scene that we're giving here, uh, is, the, is the image that's there in these two verses. When Jesus predicted his disciples that he was going to die, this is a word he actually uses all the way back in chapter 9. He's been predicting this scene for a while now as he talks to his disciples. This is Luke 9, verse 44. Let me read this. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, Jesus says. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That word delivered is the same word that shows up again in Luke chapter 22. Jesus said this was going to happen. The disciples had no idea that it was going to be one of them that was going to be doing the handing over uh, later on in this story. Turn over with me again to Luke chapter 18, 1831. We read another story where Jesus predicts this is going to happen. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be, there's that word again, delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. See, Jesus knew why he was headed to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And when he entered Jerusalem, he knew he wasn't going to make it out of the city. Jesus knew what his disciples didn't, that one of them was going to do this delivery, was going to hand over, was going to betray them. So I want to keep reading in the story in Luke 22 as we read on to see the scene as it unfolds. Luke 22, verse 21. This is at the supper together. But the hand of him who's going to betray me, there's that word again is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who, the word shows up again there, betrays him. It's the same Greek word in verses 21 and 22 as verses four and six, and what Jesus has said would happen before that. But the disciples cannot imagine that one of them, that they'd walked with, that they'd built trust with, that the marble jar had grown together, that one of them could do this. But then the conversation makes this bizarre turn from there. A ridiculous argument ensues. Verse 23, let's keep reading on. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which one of them would be considered the greatest. I mean, who needs enemies when you've got friends like these? Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they wonder who it might be. And then they argue, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, how do you make that turn? And all of this is as Jesus is preparing to give up his life for each of them and for the rest of humanity. But it doesn't end there. The betrayal is going to continue with Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times that you know me. And the prediction comes a reality in the verses that follow. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. 
Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And we tend to focus when we think about betrayal on Judas betraying Jesus. And Judas' betrayal is certainly worthy of our uh, attention, but there's another betrayal in this scene that belongs to Peter, I believe. I I imagine that when Jesus predicts that three times he's going to deny even knowing him and the rooster's going to crow as a reminder of this moment, I imagine Peter, if I know Peter, saying, oh no, this isn't going to happen. I'll go to prison. I'll even die for you, Jesus. And I imagine that's in his head as the scenes kind of go forward. And when they end up in the garden, Peter's got that in his head, right? And we find out later on, and the gospel of John tells us the detail, that the one who uh, cuts off this servant's ear is actually Peter. And I have to imagine, it's Peter trying to make sure that Jesus knows, I told you I wasn't going to do it. And now I'm showing you that I'm on your side. I'm not, I'll go to prison. I'll die for you. I'll, I'll cut off a guy's ear for you. Peter's trying to do the right thing. And so he pulls off his, out his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear. And this seems like Peter's defending Jesus. But if you've been paying attention to the ministry of Jesus, you realize that Peter's violence in this moment is a betrayal of Jesus' message his entire ministry. Jesus says almost exactly that. He says, Peter, am I leading a rebellion? But in the following scene, we find Peter denying Jesus three separate times in the courtyard. Three times people recognize that Peter's a friend of Jesus and he denies it. And when the rooster crows, Peter knows exactly what he's done. I want you to think through this from the perspective of Jesus for a moment. In this chapter alone, Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies and betrays Jesus. The disciples betray Jesus with their argument about who's the greatest in the midst of wanting them, obviously denying him and betraying him. And I would suggest that Peter betrays Jesus by his action of trying to start the rebellion. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. This is a hard moment. We tend to focus on the pain of the crucifixion as if that's the big pain and difficulty at the end of Jesus' life. But if you've ever experienced the betrayal of close friends or a spouse, sometimes we believe it would be easier to die than to experience that betrayal. If you've been betrayed, Jesus can identify with your pain. And the pain only grows as Jesus climbs up on the cross. Because do you remember what he cries from the cross? He quotes David from Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus feels forsaken, which is another word for betrayal, which is like an empty marble jar. And yet I would say that as much as Jesus experiences this pain, as much as Hebrews 4 tells us he's been tempted in every way we have, he can empathize and sympathize with all of our experiences. I go to this scene right here and I have to look at Jesus and the way he responds. And I think there's something to learn in Jesus' response. See, there's two common responses that we have to betrayal in our lives. The first is that we lash out. And the second option is often that we check out. Two different responses. Some choose to lash out. When we're betrayed, it's natural to want to respond in kind. 
Well, if you're going to betray my trust, then I'll be happy to betray your trust. That can come in the form of gossip. It can come in the form of revenge and wanting to hurt people in return because hurt people hurt people. So we begin to think, I'll settle the score. I'll teach them. I'll show them. But have you noticed that while revenge and lashing out can feel good in the moment, it never fully satisfies, does it? I mean, have you ever truly evened the score with a response of revenge? But there's a second way that we respond, not just in lashing out. Some of us choose, or in some situations, we check out. Checking out is a mode of of self-preservation. When we've been hurt, it's common sense to begin to protect ourselves, to not fill the jars that we have as quickly. And so when the marble jar is emptied out, we lose all trust, and we can begin to doubt that even we can discern and judge who can be trusted. We want to protect ourselves from future hurt. And so one of the ways that we check out is we stop offering trust to people. It's just easier to, to protect ourselves, to isolate ourselves. But there is another way I've also noticed that sometimes we respond when we experience betrayal. And that, that is that we just choose to give less of ourselves in the future. If we've been betrayed by a boss or a coworker, it can be easy to think, why should I continue to give my best to this place? So little by little, we offer a little less of ourselves, give a little less of our heart so that we don't hurt all over again. Now, before I speak to the way that Jesus handles this, I want to clarify something first. What I'm about to speak to doesn't cover every experience of betrayal. There are experiences of betrayal that should result in strong boundaries being put in place. If you're in an abusive relationship, I am not advocating this morning that you stay in that relationship. If you're in a relationship where there's constant betrayal, trust must be re-earned over time. But I do believe that Jesus has something to teach us, even with those caveats. See, Jesus is a master of human relationships, and he proves to us that a response can be different than the one of checking out and lashing out. Jesus didn't choose those two options. Jesus' identity was so clearly placed in his identity, his relationship with God the Father, that he was able to respond in the most remarkable ways in this experience of pain and betrayal. So there's three things I want to talk through that Jesus did in that moment that I want to challenge you if you're walking through an experience or maybe you're trying to heal of those experiences of betrayal. These are three things I would encourage you to look at in the story of Jesus that perhaps we should try to put into place as well. The first thing is, He expected the betrayal, and it allowed him to prepare for it. Now, it does help to have divine foreknowledge, right? And Jesus has this sense in chapter 9 and leading up that this betrayal is going to happen. So let me speak to this for a moment. I, I know we don't have that kind of divine foresight, but if you're a leader, for instance, betrayal is part of what comes with it. If you're a Christian leader, betrayal is what comes with the job. And this can come off as extremely cynical, and that's not my heart. But one of the hardest parts of leading early in my career was coming to grips with the fact that Christians don't always act like Christ. That was a hard lesson for me because I expected Christians to act like Christ. And I could tell you stories of betrayal I've experienced as a minister. But I have to remind myself that betrayal is what happens when you choose to lead people. When you walk into relationship with people, because I've been guilty of the same thing with others as well. 
It can be isolating to be in a leadership position in particular. And because Jesus expected and predicted his betrayal, I believe he's able to respond without retaliating and without resentment. You remember what he said to Judas? It's remarkable. This scene isn't recorded in Luke's gospel. This is back in in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. Listen to this. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged the signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. So the second thing I want, to note, want you to notice is how Jesus' identity shapes his response. This is remarkable. Jesus addresses Judas as a friend. Friend, go what you are called to do. He's embodying the principles that he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He returns nothing but the greatest love and respect to Judas, even when Judas doesn't offer love and respect to him. The betrayal he experienced didn't change who Jesus was. And I think that's a remarkable testimony. When the external realities that come around us don't, we don't, we don't change and shape the response that we have, but we respond rather than reacting. And I know that is a high task in the midst of some of the most difficult betrayal. But Jesus was centered in who he was and allowed him to have a response every time that foreknowledge and expectation allowed him response. The third thing Jesus did was to stay connected to those who betrayed him. Not only did he respond with resentment, uh, did he not respond with resentment, he didn't hide or disconnect from those who betrayed him. And that is difficult. We've all had moments when we thought we had forgiven someone and were past a betrayal, but all of a sudden we run into a person at the grocery store and we realize those feelings are still there. We haven't fully sorted through it. But if the church is going to get a start following this resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is going to have to stay in relationship with Peter and the rest of the disciples so that they can be reconciled and restored. Think about what happens because Jesus is willing to stay in relationship with Peter. He ends up preaching and 3,000 people are baptized at Pentecost. And all of that would have been impossible if Jesus was disconnected from his disciples. Now, as I said earlier, there are situations where that is impossible. But in many situations, as much as we'd like to think it's impossible, I think, think about what could happen if we were to not just cut off things in that moment. The boundaries could be set up and maybe there's a possibility for reconciliation and restoration. What might happen if that's possible? I think about the scene with Judas later on that I wish Jesus had been able to have, which is the same meeting he had on the breakfast, having breakfast with Peter and restoring him. I'm sure Jesus is wishing he could have that same conversation with Judas. See, the only way we can respond in these ways is if we are choosing to find all of our identity in Jesus prior to the betrayal we will experience. The question is not if you're going to be betrayed. The question is when. And so I think the only way to kind of develop this disposition, to be ready in those moments, is to develop a kind of gratitude. See, we've all been betrayed. But the reality is we've all betrayed others as well, haven't we? We've all been, we've all betrayed God. We've spoken words of commitment and then we've not kept our commitment. Most of us in this room have said that Jesus is Lord, but our actions have betrayed that statement. But we have a God who responds to our betrayal by responding back 
and staying connected with us. We have a God who offers forgiveness and offers to always create a road for relationship to be reestablished. And God's example in Jesus gives us an example of how we can pursue the same things with others. So this morning, the challenge to you is not that you take all of the steps in your journey toward finding reconciliation or finding healing from those betrayal experiences. That's way too much to ask in one morning. But what I would ask of you is this. What's the first step you need to take in your continued healing in the midst of the betrayal? Because what we think is that unforgiveness destroys the other person, but unforgiveness is really more like drinking poison thinking we're hurting the other person. It destroys us. It corrodes us from the inside. And forgiveness heals us as much as it has the possibility of healing the relationship if that's to happen in time. So I know I'm treading on pretty sensitive ground this morning. And I appreciate the way that you've been willing to go there with me. I'm grateful for Michelle's story that allows us a chance to kind of feel and touch and realize we have our own stories in some way of betrayal. It'd be easy this morning to compare, and that's never helpful in these situations. So maybe you don't feel like your betrayal as much as someone else, or maybe you think, how could anyone else know what I've experienced and ask me to do those steps toward healing. But what we want is to become the wholehearted people that Jesus has called us to be. And the only way that begins to happen is if we take our next step toward healing, toward forgiveness, toward putting up trust again, toward opening the marble jar that maybe over time there can be trust that can be developed. Let me tell you this. I do know this is true. The the evil one wants you to lash out with revenge. The evil one wants you to be chained to resentment. The evil one wants you to lash out or to check out, but God wants you free. And this is why freedom is so central to Jesus' teachings. God has forgiven all of our sins and none of us have clean hands. We've all wronged someone, but with Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no list of wrongs that's kept. There is no judgment for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you this week to take your first step. That first step toward freedom. So maybe this week you need to think about what is the experience of betrayal that you realize this morning may have stuck with you. In those moments that you see that person, if it's not fully resolved, what does that create inside and what was that experience? Let's own up to it. How has it shaped you? Or maybe the question this week is this, is there a step you need to take in order to regain trust with another person that you've betrayed? How would that happen this week in continuing those steps? Or maybe it's this, do you need forgiveness from a betrayal you've caused in the life of another person? We've all been on the giving and the receiving ends of this, and there's some deep pain in the room this morning, I know. But my prayer this morning is that we can follow in the way of Jesus, and that we can loose these chains of resentment that the evil one wants to tack to us, and then in some way we can walk freer lives as we seek to respond in the way that Jesus did. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, I, I know you know the number of hairs on everyone's head in the room this morning. You've known us from before we were knit together in our mother's wombs, and you've walked with us every step of the way. You've actually collected our tears, the Psalms tell us. So God, for all those tears and the pain and the difficulty that we've walked through, I know that there's a lot of collective pain in this room. And and this resentment doesn't just kind of go away. It accumulates. 
this betrayal accumulates in our lives as we walk through this experience and that experience. And it can be so easy to seek revenge or it can be so easy to just kind of hold ourselves back and to protect ourselves and to isolate ourselves. And yet that's not what you want for us as your people. You want us to find healing and in the healing and in the scars that are developed to tell those stories so that others have hope to find freedom as well. So this morning, God, I pray that first steps, that second steps, that 50th steps would be taken this morning, this week, however they need to work out. And that you would help us to become a more free people, a more forgiven people ourselves. And we begin from a place of gratitude because we realize that we've been guilty of betraying you. We found ourselves in the seat that Judas was in. We've found ourselves with Peter denying in certain senses, God, the commitment we made in our baptism. So this morning, God, we want to recommit that we believe Jesus is Lord. We want our lives to be more aligned with that this week. But we, out of forgiveness you've given to us, we respond with gratitude. And that gratitude wells up in us to some kind of miracle of forgiveness that we want to offer. So that we don't keep drinking poison ourselves and we can free others. So God, would you do that in our lives? Would you do that in this church? Would you, would you make a move this morning and this week in our lives? We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Facebook. You can find and like our page at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.